0: We are doomed. These were the words of 86-year-old Dr. Maya Hillman, a social scientist and senior fellow emeritus of the Policy Studies Institute in London. The audience he's speaking to at the University of East Anglia are stunned. He continues, The outcome is death. And it's the end of most life on the planet because we're so dependent on the burning of fossil fuels. There are no means of reversing the process which is melting the polar ice caps. And very few appear to be prepared to say so. Hillman is no crazy conspiracy theorist either. (coughs) For almost 60 years, his research has used empirical data to challenge the wisdom of the status quo. In 1972, he heavily criticised out-of-town shopping centres more than 20 years before the government changed planning rules to stop their spread. Back in 1984, Hillman proposed energy ratings for houses which only became adopted as government policy in 2007. For decades, he has been challenging the supremacy of the car and its damaging impact on the freedoms and safety of those without one. And over 40 years ago, he had the foresight to challenge society's single-minded pursuit of economic growth. Now, I'm not going to bore you with more of Hillman's legacy, but I hope the point is clear. When he says something, he's the kind of person worth paying attention to. Over the last quarter century, Hillman's focus has turned to climate change and society's lack of foresight in taking action to combat its devastating effects. In an interview with The Guardian, Hillman elaborates, what legacies are we leaving for future generations? In the early 21st century, we did as good as nothing in response to climate change. Our children and grandchildren are going to be extraordinarily critical. Even if the world went zero carbon today, that would not save us because we've gone past the point of no return. Now, I read this interview just a few weeks ago as I was beginning to travel home from a trip to Tasmania. I'd just spent 10 days camping and hiking through a number of national parks in the Northwest, taking in the glorious, life-giving beauty of creation. And if I'm completely honest, uh, reading Hillman's words left me in a momentary pit of despair. In the recent years, I've grown in my love and appreciation and awe of planet Earth, what Pope Francis calls our common home. And as I've spent time in contemplation out amongst the natural world and grown in my knowledge of God's deep love for it, I've come to realize our deep interconnectedness with the whole of creation. The Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, once commented in a journal entry, how absolutely true and how central a truth that we are purely and simply part of nature, though we are the part which recognises God. It is not Christianity, indeed, but post-Cartesian technologism that separates man from the world and makes him a kind of little God in his own right. We as human beings are created in the image of God, and have a special place in the whole of creation and therefore a distinct role to play in God's redemptive mission. Yet our destiny is tied up with all of creation. We are not separate from it, even though we may buy into that illusion from time to time. (coughs) As some of you might recall from uh, a series a few years back, we did on Revelation, God in Christ did not come to rescue us out of creation Rather, God came to restore and renew all of it. Jess reminded us last, last week that we are always living in the now. We cannot escape it. But as Christians, we must constantly recall and remind ourselves of the redemptive story we find ourselves placed in, which extends from the beginning to the end of time, in order to understand how we are to live in the reality of the present moment. We are faced then with the following questions. How are we to make sense of our current ecological crisis in light of Christ's resurrection and the future renewal of all things? And if we can indeed make sense of this current global situation, how are we to live as disciples of the risen Christ? Now, if we open to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, we get a glimpse of what the future holds the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, Paul writes. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here we read of our interconnectedness with all of creation. We read of our common destiny. God's action in Christ was and is to save all of creation, not just us as individuals. Paul insists that creation too will be transformed from the awe-inspiring blue whale to minute plasmids, the towering Himalaya to the deep dark depths of the Mariana Trench, all will be touched and transfigured by God's resurrection power. Paul then continues, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Creation too is subject to the present suffering, which touches all of our lives. Suffering is not merely local, it's cosmic but so too is the glorious future which awaits us. Restoration is not just personal for us, but it is universal. The source of Paul's confidence in this future renewal amidst suffering is none other than Christ's resurrection. In his bodily resurrection from the depths of death, God's future broke into the midst of history. It is because of God's very action in Christ that we as the people of God Uh, we as the people of a God who brings life from death can have a patient hope. God will in some mysterious way breathe life into the entire cosmos, resurrecting all that has been subjected to the forces (coughs) of death and decay. As the prophet Habakkuk claims, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This same God who, in the person of Jesus, rose from the dead some 2,000 years ago, a God who we as Christians claim is love, intends to flood the universe. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, in reflecting on this passage, suggests that the world is beautiful not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but also because it is pointing forward. It is designed to be filled, flooded, drenched, in God as a chalice is beautiful not least because of what we know it is designed to contain or as a violin is beautiful not least because we know the music of which it is capable but hope requires both object and absence it is fueled by the certainty of its object and the profundity of its absence And in the present moment of this absence, both ourselves and the whole of creation groans in pain. We who have the first fruits of the spirit who contain within and amongst ourselves a taste of the renewal to come are not to shy away from this pain, but are called by God to share in it. Wherever pain and suffering exists in the world, it's there that the church must be found patiently praying and acting in hope. We are somehow and in some way we cannot really comprehend participating in God's redemptive purposes when we engage with the brokenness of our world and act in life-giving ways, no matter how insignificant these actions may seem. So how are we then to live as disciples and what shape must our discipleship take in light of the past, the future and And our present moment. If we turn our pages back to the Gospel of John to the point where Jesus first appears after his resurrection, we begin to get a little bit of an idea. In verse 11 of chapter 8 we are met with the echoes of the Garden of Eden. Mary, whilst weeping, stoops to look into the tomb of Jesus but is met by two angels. Like the cherubim who were placed to guard Eden and the Tree of Life, These angels mark the resting place of the temple of Christ's body. Now, it's not insignificant that this is the first day of the week either. The language used here recalls the first day in Genesis where God began the work of creation with the words, Let there be light. This is the eighth day, the new first day of the new creation. We know from various historical sources that the early Christians held to the Jewish idea of the eighth day symbolizing the age to come. Thus for John's audience, though they went about their daily lives in their own particular historical moment, um, they did so whilst living in the eighth, eighth day, the age of the new creation which transcends time and space. Returning to the scene of Mary at Jesus' tomb, the angel asks her, woman, why are you weeping? She responds, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. As Mary turns away from the tomb, she is met by none other than the risen Christ she seeks. Yet she doesn't realise who he is. Who does Mary think he is? In verse 16, we find out. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. And some scholars believe that here, John is in fact portraying Jesus as the gardener but not just any gardener. Just as this garden echoes the Garden of Eden, which God created, Jesus is being portrayed here as the creator and initiator of the new garden. And a garden as a transformation of the earth is a symbol of God's desire for the flourishing of all creation. In or close by to this particular garden would have been Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified but now this place has been transfigured. It is the place of resurrection, of new life, of the beginning of the new creation. Jesus, as the divine gardener, ensures the care and flourishing of the land. And if we go back to the very beginning of John's gospel account, it begins with creation. John speaks of the word through whom all things came into being. And as it comes to its conclusion, this very word who brought all things into being is now the gardener, who is cultivating the new creation. Through the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the renewal of all things has now begun. And if we continue on to the conclusion of John in chapter 21, we see that the account has been intentionally left open-ended. Why is this the case? Well, I'm gonna suggest that it is because John is alluding to our role that we have to play in God's redemptive story. The divine creational work continues on through the mission of Jesus' disciples. To follow Christ is to participate in the holy vocation of gardening. We are called to be divine gardeners in a world still riddled by the effects of death and decay. In the face of despair, we stand firm in patient hope, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And in the face of the forces of death, which exploit and destroy God's good creation, we practice resurrection, faithfully working for the flourishing of our common home in the knowledge that our actions, however big or small, carry on this redemptive mission of God in Christ. And I'm convinced that our calling as disciples to be divine gardeners in our world is a deeply faithful, countercultural, and a prophetic vocation. In the book of Genesis where God sent Adam into Eden, his task uh, was to serve and preserve the land. Today, in light of the resurrection and our current ecological crisis, we must reimagine what it looks like to faithfully serve and preserve our earth as a central part of our own mission and discipleship. A good gardener serves the garden by planting seeds, training plants, watering and pruning and harvesting good produce. They'll be sensitive in the way they manage it, neither neglecting it to overgrow <coughs> into a wilderness nor exploiting its resources by totally stripping it bare. Good stewardship of a garden will result in a state of balance where each part of the ecosystem has the opportunity to fully thrive. In order to live out this vocation as divine gardeners, I'm going to suggest that as disciples of the risen Christ, our mission must involve four key components. Communities of courage, gentle living, prophetic action, and nourishing worship. First, we must commit to being a part of communities of courage. In a time where rugged individualism is the main name of the game, we must be a people who remember that through Christ's resurrection, we belong in a renewed way to something larger than ourselves. We belong to God, to our community of believers and to the wider family of creation. This notion of libertarian independence is nothing other than an illusion. We are deeply interconnected to the communities in which God has placed us. And in our globalized age, we are increasingly connected with the lives of our <coughs> global neighbors and all living creatures. As 20th-century missiologist Leslie Newbigin once wrote, Jesus did not write a book, but he formed a community. We are all in this together. This divine task and the weight of the ecological destruction the earth is facing is to be shouldered by all of us, not any one individual. We are to be courageous in the way we live as a community. Yet we are also to be a place and space in which each of us can cultivate our unique gifts and abilities in order that they may be given in service to God's redemptive mission. And this leads to my second component, gentle living. In a world where endless economic growth seems to be our number one priority and where day after day we are bombarded by messages which insist that we must consume ever increasing amounts of useless things, a commitment to living gently and simply speaks of the God of abundance we have encountered in Christ Jesus, but we know this cannot be done in isolation, not not merely because doing so will increase the impact of our actions in a utilitarian sense, but because doing so reflects the divine life and and beauty and love of our God. And furthermore, living gently in community guards us against the danger of becoming, I guess, eco-Pharisees where we become so focused on our own individual carbon-free purity that we begin to believe that we are morally superior to those who aren't as pure as ourselves. And there are multitudes of ways we can begin or continue to explore living in gentler and simpler ways. We each have our part to play. And this leads to the third component of our mission as divine gardeners, prophetic action. In our deep interconnectedness we must remember that we are a part of much larger systems and structures which have led and are leading to the degradation of our planet and in this global comp- uh, complex global web of ours it is those entities with the most power who more often than not are the biggest contributors to the destruction of our planet whether it is governments who insist on the pursuit of economic growth above all else or multinational corporations who continue to exploit the earth in order to increase profit margins, we as the people of God, and in the name of the risen Christ, are called to speak truth to these powers. We must call them to account for their actions, and at the same time, invite them through our words and deeds to another more life-giving way. From lobbying our government to implement the right legislation to reduce emissions, to literally putting our bodies in the way of those seeking to build yet another destructive coal mine. These actions, though they may seem to be extreme at times, are not only necessary to curb the effects of climate change, but perhaps more importantly, embody the life that God intended for the world life and love that through God will one day flood the entire cosmos. Finally, we are to engage in nourishing worship. Given the dire consequences that are being predicted as a result of our current addiction to fossil fuels and the trap of giving in to individualism, there is the danger of being overcome by feelings of despair, of isolation and nihilism. And even worse, as many of us know and may have experienced, there is the very real prospect of burning out. Spiritual practices and corporate worship which nourish us then become all the more important. For it is God in whom we are able to find rest. It's God who sustains us in the good work he has prepared for for us in advance to do. Prayer, silent contemplation, singing, partaking in the Eucharist are ways in which the risen Christ comes to us and sustains us for the journey. Rowan Williams in God With Us writes that in practising the Eucharist we are calling God to do something resurrection shaped in the middle of our worship, for him to bring himself to life as the bread is broken and the wine is shared and as we stretch out our hands and open our mouths. As we engage in the Eucharist, we are reminded that the divine purposes of God are not merely about uh, what goes on in our heads intellectually, but what we actively do with our bodies. How we live with our material bodies matters because our whole selves and our whole lives have now become signs of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love and God's faithfulness. In the Eucharist, the bread and the wine come to us as a part of God's new creation. We're not just remembering uh, the moment of the Last Supper and the events that took place 2,000 years ago. Rather, as we partake in the Eucharist, we must see it as God's arrival, God, God arriving from the future and breaking into our present. God's future is meeting us in our now. God is in Christ, the beginning of a new world of justice, shalom and love. And he comes to meet us in our present moment, to nourish and sustain us, to live lives of God's justice, peace and love in the midst of this world. Leslie Newbigin once said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. As disciples of this risen Christ, called to participate in the work of divine gardening, may we not give in to a blind optimism nor a fatalistic pessimism, but live in the power of the resurrection. May we live lives that dare to show that in the midst of death, God can resurrect new life. Amen.